It's Friday, September 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The whistleblower complaint against President Trump has been released, and it is alleging that Trump is using the power of the office to solicit interference from a foreign government in the election. Furthermore, it alleges a cover-up by the White House to lock down records of the call. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill, joins us for what's in the whistleblower complaint and a recap of testimony from the Director of National Intelligence, Joseph McGuire. Next, the upcoming movie Gemini Man pits a 49-year-old Will Smith against a 23-year-old clone of himself. To get it all done, 500 artists at six visual effects studios were tasked with creating this completely digital version of Smith. They are not simply de-aging him, this is a Will Smith comprised of nothing but data. Darren King, contributor to Wired, joins us to talk about this game-changing tech. Finally, a quick story about how the creator of the Labradoodle says the dog breed is his life's regret. Wally Conron spoke to the Sum of All Parts podcast and explained why he created the breed to begin with and why he is unsure if what he bred was a designer dog or a disaster. My producer Victor Wright joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You don't believe the whistleblower is a political hack, do you, Director? I believe the whistleblower is operating in good faith. Well, then they couldn't be. The law. They, they couldn't be in good faith if they were acting as a political hack, could they? Mr. Chairman, my job is to support and lead the entire intelligence community. That individual works for me. Joining us now is Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Thanks for having me. The acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, testified before the House Intelligence Committee. He discussed a lot of things, his reasoning for initially blocking this whistleblower complaint that has been the talk of the town right now. The complaint centered on a call between the president and the Ukrainian president where uh, it looks like President Trump urged him to investigate, to start an investigation into Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden over his connections to a Ukrainian gas company called Burisma. This complaint really is at the center of why House Democrats opened an impeachment inquiry against the president now, and everything is blowing up. We got the copy of the complaint. We had testimony from Joseph McGuire. Brett, help us out. What do we know? What are the big takeaways from this whistleblower complaint? So obviously yesterday, the White House put out a rough transcript of the president's call with the president of Ukraine. So that sort of started to get the ball rolling here. But then this complaint, which was made public this morning, really kind of solidified, filled in some of the gaps on why there was so much scrutiny around that call. It revealed that after the call, the White House went through the process of essentially putting the contents of the call, putting the transcript of the call into a more secure database than would typically be used for a call with foreign leaders. And the whistleblower wrote that that was because officials were so concerned about the contents that they went through the process of putting it in a more secure server where fewer people had access to it. So essentially, this whistleblower was raising the alarm that they felt it was problematic that White House officials were shielding additional eyes from seeing the contents of this call. And this system, this other system where they were placing this, I mean, this is reserved for national security issues, files related to covert actions. And the other indication was that the White House had done this previously before, other politically sensitive information rather than national security type information. So, yeah, so this is a database where very few people have access to it. You need 
code word access to get at these files. And this is a White House that has been, from the beginning, extremely concerned about leaks, about people sharing information about the president's calls with foreign leaders that they felt were embarrassing to the president. So reporting indicates that the White House started doing this with, as you mentioned, additional calls besides this Ukraine call. That is concerning to a lot of people, to a lot of lawmakers, to former national security officials who feel that that database should only be used for national security concerns and for highly classified information, not to shield the president from potentially embarrassing or damaging information. So that was a big top line takeaway that the White House essentially had a concerted effort to sort of shield the contents of this call from additional eyes. What else did we learn about Rudy Giuliani? Because he seems to be a central figure in a lot of this, doing some uh, maybe some backroom talks with other Ukrainian officials and aides to the president there. We just really don't know what he was doing. So Rudy Giuliani, who is the president's personal lawyer, has really kind of emerged as a central figure in this whole saga. And the whistleblower complaint essentially outlines that the Giuliani was a main player in this and that the president had been bringing him up on the call with the Ukrainian leader, that Rudy Giuliani had been in touch with Ukrainian officials. And some of this was known before through previous reporting that Rudy Giuliani had been out trying to dig up dirt on the Bidens in Ukraine. And he is essentially admitted as such in his various television interviews. But this whistleblower complaint really kind of raises concerns about whether Rudy Giuliani, who is a private citizen, about the fact that he's essentially working as an envoy for the president and working to advance his interests. So certainly Rudy Giuliani, you know, he's already been under scrutiny for his contacts with Ukraine, and that will only continue and be heightened because of this complaint. The whistleblower himself or herself, we don't know who it is, says that, quote, I was not a direct witness to most of the events described. And I know the president has hit on that, saying it's secondhand knowledge. He wasn't there for the call. The New York Times is reporting that this whistleblower is a CIA officer who was detailed to work the White House suggesting that he was an analyst by training. He knew a lot of details about American foreign policy. And this kind of bolsters the whole complaint. Is He's not a nobody. He knows what he's talking about. But that is one of the major complaints. He was not a witness to a lot of this stuff. As you mentioned, President Trump and the White House, they've really kind of seized on that as their big talking point, that this person was not on the call, was not in the room when it happened. So how can it be trusted? How can you call this credible? The White House put out a statement calling it a collection of second and third hand accounts that show nothing improper happened. The counter side of that is the fact that even though this individual was not on the call and admitted as much, they did in their complaint seem to get the basis of the conversation, the details correct as far as matching up with what the transcript showed. So even though they weren't on the call, they still matched the transcript as far as relaying that the president talked about Joe Biden on this call, that he was congratulatory at the beginning before moving on to these kinds of requests. So I think that and then the fact that it is a CIA analyst, as The New York Times reported, I think there will be, you know, certainly a big fight to come along partisan lines about the credibility of this individual. How did the acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, do during his testimony? I, I heard him say a lot, you know, my conversations with the president are privileged things like that. How did he do? Did we learn anything more from his testimony? So Joseph McGuire had some interesting moments, I thought, with lawmakers this morning. He sort of defended the whistleblower as far as saying that they did the right thing and going through the process to come forward. He called the whistleblower credible, which was something the president himself has not done. He's sort of gone the opposite route in attacking the whistleblower. And as you mentioned, the acting director 
really tried to skirt questions about his interactions with the president. But he did say that the president had not directly asked him for the identity of the whistleblower. So he revealed that much. But there was uh, an interesting exchange where he was asked point blank, you know, have you discussed this complaint with the president? And that is where the acting director pushed back and said, I won't discuss my conversation with the president because they're privileged. So I think that raised a lot of eyebrows and and led people to believe that he has discussed this complaint with the president. Brett Samuels, White House reporter for The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. There's more to the portrayal of a young Will Smith than just his looks, right? They've got to study how he moves and the precise way that his brow furrows when he's thinking, you know, all that kind of stuff. They spent a good 48 months just kind of obsessing over. Joining us now is Darren King, freelance writer and contributor to Wired. Thanks for joining us, Darren. Thank you, Oscar. We're going to be talking about some of the new game-changing technology that you're going to be seeing in a new movie called Gemini Man starring Will Smith and in a few other projects. And really, people in the industry think that this is going to be used more widely in the coming years. You've all seen movies where people's faces have been de-aged. Basically, they look a lot younger. This new technology is not really that. This is more in line with creating a, a complete digital character. So in this movie... Gemini Man, Will Smith is an assassin who's being hunted by his clone, a younger version of himself. Will Smith is 49 years old. This other character, the younger Will Smith, is going to be 23 years old. And he's a complete digital character. Darren, tell us a little bit more about this. Well, yeah, I guess it's relevant to sort of clarify what the aging in other films actually is. So you've got the actor on set heavily made up, the lighting is very flattering, and basically in post-production, they make them look younger through sort of digital airbrushing. As you say, this is not that. This is closer to, I guess, Gollum in the Lord of the Rings movies or Caesar in the Apes reboot films. This is a completely new, built-from-the-ground-up, data-driven CG character. And what's interesting is this is the first time that one character like that is actually in a starring role in a film. So we've had... Cameo performances by people like, you know, Peter Cushing was resurrected for Rogue One a few years back, but he only had a few scenes. But this is a main character who has to sort of pull his weight narratively in this film. So it's a milestone. Whether it's a game changer sort of depends on how people receive it. This process that they've been working on to make this movie has been a few years in the making and hundreds of hours just to render this character that looks like Will Smith. And they're using references from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and obviously (laughs) other things from when the actor was younger. There's a lot of work going into this. Yeah, as you say, uh, they looked at reference material from that sort of period in Will Smith's life. They studied it, trying to work out the essence, because there's more to the portrayal of a young Will Smith than just his looks, right? They've got to study how he moves and the precise way that his brow furrows when he's thinking, you know, all that kind of stuff. They spent a good 48 months just kind of obsessing over. In the final product, Will Smith wears a lot of motion capture stuff, and then they kind of input that data to the living, I think you refer to it as the the living corpse or, you know, the empty vessel that they have that is the CGI character. But how do they go through the painstaking process of making him in the first place? So there's a few steps. First of all, they scan the 49-year-old Will Smith within an inch of his life, like a microscopically detailed sort of version of Will Smith as he is today. And then when they've got that model of him, if you like, they chipped away at it to sort of 
I, I guess you could say it was a, like a, a full body facelift, sort of applying surgical expertise to basically bring him back to his younger self. So they end up having this 23-year-old version of Will Smith on their computers. And then from there, they sort of bring that to sort of fleshy, organic life, right? They map the pores in his skin. They work out the precise way his skin reflects light. So there's an amazing amount of detail there, but it's still an empty vessel. So what Will Smith has to do is get into his motion capture suit and sort of drive this model of his younger self. And that's basically the performance we're seeing on screen. And we're going to be seeing this a lot more for this new Netflix movie called The Irishman. You're going to be able to see Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, almost wearing a digital mask of sorts instead of doing previously what we said, this whole de-aging process, which is a lot a lot of times done in post-production, they're going to be wearing like a digital mask. So it's going to take this kind of Will Smith model and use it on these actors as well. So that was done by Industrial Light and Magic, who did Rogue One a couple of years ago. And they've been a little bit tight-lipped about their actual process behind the scenes making this film. But I think that explanation you just gave is pretty spot on as far as people understand it. So uh, it won't be the de-aging we've seen in Captain Marvel and other Marvel films, it'll be a full digital CG face that these actors are wearing. I mean, the big test really is going to come. I think the movie starts on October 11th, and we'll have to see just how well they pull it off. As you said, this is the first time that this digital character is really going to be one of the main characters in the movie. And will audiences accept it? If they do, this is going to springboard, you know, a lot of other productions just like this. But if it doesn't, I mean, the technology will still keep improving, but it's just going to be an interesting look to see what happens when the movie comes out. Will Smith has sort of acknowledged that he's very excited about it because if there's a movie that would be more suitable for his younger self, he can just sit back in his chair and send off his uh, (laughs) younger digital clone to do the work for him. And he kind of said that jokingly, but That's sort of the future that people in the visual effects industry are talking about. How long it takes for pixels to replace flesh and blood actors remains to be seen, but it's being talked about. And the cost of it, too. I think some of the people you spoke to for the story said that this digital version costs twice as much as the real Will Smith would cost, just because of how many people and the man hours are involved in getting it just right. That's right. But it's going to get cheaper. It's going to get simpler and it's going to get faster. So we will be seeing more of it as those things happen. It's sort of not quite in the deep fakes territory, that sort of horrible sort of ethical (laughs) quandary of deep fakes. But the same sort of ideas apply in that you're making these actors do things sometimes that they didn't actually do. Darren King, freelance writer and contributor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. When I say I opened a Pandora box and released a Frankenstein monster, I released the reason for these unethical, ruthless people to breed these dogs and sell them for big bucks. That's my big regret. Joining me now is my producer, Victor Wright. Thanks for being here, Victor. Thank you. I love animal stories, and the story this past week caught my eye. It was about the inventor of the Labradoodle. He's a man named Wally Conron. And he did an interview with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation on a podcast of theirs called Some of All Parts. And the thing that was really interesting about it, he, he talked about why he created the Labradoodle, but he also shared his biggest regret and frustration is that he actually created it. He said that it kind of created this uh, pathway for people to create all these designer dogs 
and he really hates it. As a matter of fact, Victor, tell us why he created the Labradoodles to begin with. Back in 1989, he was working for the Royal Guide Dogs Association of Australia, and they got a request from a woman who said, I need a guide dog, but my husband is also allergic to hair and long hair and dog hair and stuff like that. Is there anything that you can do? So he went and just started breeding poodles who are very famous for being hypoallergenic, which means that people with dog allergies don't usually get affected by it. And breeding it with other dogs such as the Labrador Retriever, which he eventually wound up using. And soon he breeded his boss's male poodle, Harley, with a female Labrador, Brandy. And nine weeks later, Brandy gave birth to Sheik, Simon, and Sultan, who are the world's first Labradoodles, according to reports. And he sent off a sample of hair of each dog to the lady in Hawaii who requested it. They picked one, they picked Sultan, and they trained the dog, shipped it off to her, and that's the end of that part of it. But they were left with these other two puppies, and they were trying to sell them out. They were trying to say, hey, we have these two dogs, but nobody wanted a crossbreed for some reason. So he said he called up his PR people, and they came up with this gimmick. And I love this clip. Here's a little clip from the Sum of All Parts podcast on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Not one person wanted a crossbreed. And I thought... These pups have to get out. So I went to our PR lady and I said, can you get onto the media and tell them we've bred a special breed, a breed called the Labradoodle. It's non-allergic and we're using them as guide dogs. It was a gimmick. They were crossbred. Nobody wanted them, but everybody wanted a Labradoodle. Same dog, different name. And often that's the case, you know, some very good marketing and you're off to the races with it. So, you know, obviously the Labradoodle, very cute dog, Every celebrities like Christy Brinkley, Jennifer Aniston, Tiger Woods, Neil Young all have Labradoodles, but he really regrets it. He says that he created this demand that unethical, ruthless breeders were more than happy to meet, basically making these designer dogs. Yeah. And he realized this in a matter of days, quote, I went to our boss at the time and I said to him, look, I've created a monster. We need to do something about it to control it. So very quickly, he regretted what he had done for this. Uh, he obviously didn't regret giving this woman the ability to have a guide dog. Right. But he regretted the way that he got rid of the other two dogs and gave them to owners because that's what led to the breeding and stuff like that. And Wally Conron has devoted his life to this. He stresses creating breeds, using high quality dogs to create better dogs. And that's part of it. You know, he says that he feels that people don't even care. They just want to get the end product. And that really bothered him. And he also says that he finds that his, the biggest majority of these Labradoodles are either crazy or have hereditary problems. And they do have some health problems. So all this kind of stuff really bothered him. But he's been in the game for a long time. He's been credited with crossbreeding cockapoos, sheepoos, and puggles, which I love. I love cute little puggles. But it's just crazy that this is his life's regret, one of the most popular dogs out there. It's an interesting story, and I suggest everybody go take a listen to the Sum of All Parts podcast just to hear how he talks about it. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. And tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.